0: Tonight we take a journey to the heart of the cross. We want to know, why did Jesus die? And it's a journey that starts on a hillside outside Jerusalem one Friday, 2,000 years ago. But it's a journey which ultimately must take us to the very heart of God himself. So we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight on this journey. But there's just one simple question that we're going to keep asking again and again. Why did Jesus die? We're going to use that question to travel further and further in to the very heart of the cross. Discovering what answers God gives us in the Bible to why Jesus died. So our journey starts on page 20 of your booklet. And we start with the most obvious answer to why did Jesus die. It's the physical answer. Jesus died because he was crucified. Three simple facts about crucifixion. First, it was gruesome. Crucifixion was a particularly torturous way to kill somebody. You didn't actually die from being nailed to the cross. You died from either exhaustion leading to asphyxiation, you choke yourself to death, or massive heart failure. And the whole process was sometimes known to take days. Second thing about crucifixion, it was common. It was used across the ancient world, not just by the Romans. Though in one infamous example in 71 BC, ever heard of Spartacus? He was a Roman slave who led a rebellion in 71 BC. The Romans defeated Spartacus and his slave army. And the Romans captured 6,000 of the slaves and they crucified 6,000. Slaves along a 200-kilometre stretch of the Appian Way. It was common. Which then brings us to the third fact. Crucifixion was deliberately degrading. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was usually reserved for the lowest of the lows, uh, for criminals, for slaves, or for non-citizens from the provinces. It was regarded as terribly degrading, which is why, even though it was commonly used, there are actually very few detailed descriptions of it in the ancient literature. It was just too tasteless to really even write about. Even the New Testament gospel writers don't go into detail about Jesus' crucifixion. They just say, and they crucified him, because everyone knew what that entailed. And because it was so gruesome and so degrading, the Romans used it as as an extreme warning. You don't want to do what this person did. So the most simple answer to the question, why did Jesus die, is because he was crucified, along with thousands of others throughout human history. But why was Jesus crucified? Well, that brings us to the political answer. We saw this last night in Mark's Gospel account. The charge laid against Jesus before the Roman authorities was one of sedition, that is, presenting himself as an alternative king and thereby challenging Caesar's authority. Though we saw last night, ultimately Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified purely just to pacify the crowds. It was political expediency in the end for him. For the Jewish leaders, we saw it was something different. They didn't really care about Caesar anyway. For them, the issue was that Jesus put himself on equal footing with the Lord God, claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel's prophecy. They regarded that as blasphemy, which we saw the Old Testament says deserves death. Though we saw again last night, it was really jealousy that was driving them. Jesus had the crowds with him. They hailed him as someone great and the leaders were jealous. They wanted that for themselves. So those were the political motivations that led to Jesus' death. But if we push a bit deeper, it's clear from the New Testament that Jesus' death was not something that was sort of thrust upon him and outside of his control. Let's have a look at the personal reasons why Jesus died. You can see what Jesus says there about his death in John 10.18. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus is not a hapless and helpless victim here, right? He goes willingly to his death. If he'd wanted to, he could have prevented his own death. Have a listen to what he says himself in Matthew 26. He says, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen in this way? Jesus was able to prevent his own death, but he chose not to. Why? the answer is there in that last verse I just read because he wanted to see the prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled. Which brings us then further in to the prophetic reason for Jesus' death. The Old Testament prophets had foretold the promised Christ would not die a natural death. He would be executed. He would be killed. And so because he knew himself to be this Christ, Jesus knew that that was how things are going to go. You can see what he told his disciples there in Luke 18. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and he said to them, see we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles he'll be mocked and insulted and spat upon and after they've flogged him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise again So why did Jesus die? Because he knew he was the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king. And he knew that the destiny of the Christ was to be rejected, killed, and then rise again. That was always the vocation of the suffering servant and the Messiah. And Jesus was the one who fulfilled both those shadows. But even if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, why did the Old Testament prophets say the Christ had to die? Well, that brings us to the final point on your page. Jesus' death was necessary. The Old Testament doesn't just say that the Christ will suffer. It says the Christ must suffer. There is a necessity for the Christ to die in the wider plans of God. Somehow, the Christ's death is an essential part of what God is doing to fulfill his good creation purposes for the world. Jesus understood this. You can see this in what he taught his disciples and in the way he prayed. Have a look there at Mark 8:31. Then Jesus began to teach the disciples that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. It must take place. It was necessary. Why? Because he knows it's part of his Father God's plan. You can see that in the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw last night. This time we'll get Luke's version from Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. So why does Jesus die? Because it's an unavoidable part of the Father's plan. Somehow Jesus' death as the Christ is an essential part of God, the Father's plan to fulfill his good creation purposes for the world. Jesus knows it. And so he goes willingly. So what we started to do here is start to pull back the layers on Jesus' death. We move from the physical and the political into the personal, the prophetic, and now the necessary. But we still don't actually have clarity on why it was necessary for Jesus as the Christ to die. That is, we've still got further to go on this journey into the heart of the cross. But we have covered the first part of that journey in. But before we go any further, I'm going to hit the pause button. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the mystery of Jesus' cross. Because when we come to the death of Jesus, we are treading, as it were, on holy ground. Christians believe that God himself was doing something incredibly profound in Jesus' death. This is not like understanding any other person's death because Christians believe that Jesus wasn't just any other person. What happens at the cross involves deep and profound truths about who God is, that he is Trinity, and about who Jesus is, that he's fully man and fully God. It involves significant truths about God's justice and how he responds to sin. Now, Praise be to God, he's given us a lot of help here through what he has recorded for us in the Bible to understand it and that's what we're going through all week. But we do only have what God has given us and he doesn't tell us everything. At various points, even when we're working with what God has told us in the Scriptures, we're still going to come across points of mystery. Bits where it's not completely clear where there are still some things that we can't quite work out, how God fits them together. Now, I think Jim Packer has some helpful things to say on this. I've given you an extended quote from him on page 21. Lots of books by him up on the bookstore, which are great to read. There's lots of books up on the bookstore, by the way. Still lots of them, despite my rant yesterday. Use your money that God has entrusted to you to buy some books and read them. Okay. Have a look at page 21. Uh, looking beyond the mere facts of Jesus' crucifixion, Jim Packer asks a meta question. He, he asks this question, he says, what sort of knowledge of God's action in Christ's death can we have? Not what do we know, but what sort of knowledge? Like, Is it complete knowledge? Is it experiential knowledge? Is it? Trustworthy knowledge. Well, what sort of knowledge can we have about God's action in Christ from the scriptures? Well, this is his answer. The answer, we may say, is faith knowledge. It's a kind of knowledge of which God is both the giver and the content, it's a spirit given acquaintance with divine realities given through acquaintance with God's word. It's a kind of knowledge which makes the knower say in one and the same breath, both, whereas I was blind, now I see, and now we see as in a mirror, darkly, now I know in part. For it is a unique kind of knowledge which, though real, is not full. It is knowledge of what is Discernible within a circle of light against a background of larger darkness. It is, in short, knowledge of a mystery. The mystery of the living God at work. Mystery in the sense, in this sense, means a reality distinct from us, which in our very apprehending of it remains unfathomable to us. A reality which we acknowledge as actual without knowing how it is possible, and which we therefore describe as incomprehensible. The highest wisdom of the the theological theorist is to recognize that he is, as it were, gazing into the sun, whose very brightness makes it impossible for him fully to see it. So that at the end of the day, he has to admit that God has much more to him than theories can ever contain and to humble himself in adoration before the one whom he can never fully analyse. Every aspect of God's reality and work, without exception, is mystery. Each is a reality beyond our full fathoming, just as the cross is. And theories about any of these things which use human analogies To dispel the dimension of mystery would deserve our distrust, just as rationalistic theories about the cross do. What makes it a mystery is that creatures like ourselves can comprehend it only in part. To say this does not open the door to scepticism, for our knowledge of divine realities, like our knowledge of each other, is genuine knowledge expressed in notions which as far as they go, are true. But it does close the door against rationalism in the sense of theorising that claims to explain with finality any aspect of God's way of existing and working. And with that, it alerts us to the fact that the presence in our theology of unsolved problems is not necessarily a reflection on the truth or adequacy of our thoughts. True theories in theology, whether about the atonement or anything else, will suspect themselves of being inadequate to their object throughout. One thing that Christians know by faith is that they know only in part. And then he concludes, the passion to pack God into a conceptual box of our own making is always strong, but must be resisted. If we bear in mind that all the knowledge we can have of the atonement is a mystery about which we can only think and speak by means of models and which remain a mystery when all is said and done, it will keep us from rationalistic pitfalls and thus help our progress considerably. Now, if you're an engineer, that's, that's more reading than you've done in your lifetime. So let me summarise for our engineering friends, Packer's point. Here it is, in about six words. I don't know how many words. Here it is, ready? Beware speculating beyond what God has written. Beware speculating beyond what God has written. Our temptation is to try and fit everything together about God into nice, neat, logical boxes Created by our own puny minds. And we demand that all of our questions get answered. But I find Deuteronomy 29.29 is always helpful to remember when it comes to understanding the ways of God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever to observe all the words of this law. We hold on to what God has revealed to to us. We treasure it, we live by it, and we work with it. But what he has kept secret to himself, we humbly accept. Now, that's important to remember as we push on further into understanding the cross and why Jesus died. So why did Jesus die? Three stages of our answer as we push in further to the heart of the cross. Uh, First, part A Jesus died as the man for us. Uh, In light of the Old Testament background we explored yesterday morning, what does Jesus' death secure? Well, you'll remember in Genesis 3, the big issue was sin and its consequences. And the consequence that was given real prominence in the Genesis 2 and 3 account was death. It's there in that first speech bubble from Genesis chapter 2 in God's warning to Adam. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. What sin deserves is death. Or as Romans 6 puts it, the second speech bubble there, the wages of sin is death. Or again from Romans, this time Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. Death is the just punishment for sin under God. Now, that's what almost all of the Old Testament sacrifices were about. If you've been able to visit the Israelites' tabernacle or visit the temple in Jerusalem, you could not have escaped the the bloody animal sacrifices. There was lots and lots of blood. Why? Why did did it have to be so bloody? Well, the answer was because sin deserves death. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the animal paid with its life in place of yours. So Leviticus 17 is an important chapter for understanding this connection between sin and death or sin and blood. And Leviticus 17 verse 11, God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. The blood symbolizes death, a death that is the just penalty for sin. A life has been given. And when that penalty has been paid, there is Atonement, you see it there in, the, in that verse. Atonement. Literally, it does mean at one It seems likely that the English word atonement was actually invented by William Tyndale in the early 16th century when he was translating the Bible into English. He couldn't find an appropriate English word to translate the Hebrew and the Greek concept, so he invented one, which sounds cool. You invented one to capture the idea at-one-ment, when unity or one is established, in this case between God and sinful humans. God provided a way for the ancient Israelites to make atonement for their lives through the death of an animal sacrifice in their place. Now, we've been reading through Hebrews in our faculty times, right? We know from the book of Hebrews that... There's a bit of a problem with that. We read in Hebrews that it was actually impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human sin. No animal can actually pay the penalty for your sin or for mine. Which brings us then to what was happening at the cross of Jesus. Jesus was paying, once for all time, the full and just penalty for human sin. Have a look at how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus' death in Romans 3. God put forward Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, if you, the ESV has propitiation, which we're going to come back to in a minute for that word. As a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this is one of the key New Testament passages for understanding the significance of Jesus' death. Jesus' death is a propitiation Now, that's not a word you probably ever use in general conversation. You probably not use that while you're having dinner tonight. Oh, let me propitiate that. No. Not a word you probably ever use in general conversation, but let me tell you, you are well and truly familiar with the concept. To propitiate means to turn away anger or wrath. When you've had a fight with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you turn up on their doorstep with a bunch of flowers or tickets to see their favourite band you're propitiating right by your gift of flowers or chocolates or tickets you're hoping to turn away their just wrath at your insert whatever stupid thing you did right? you get what I mean to propitiate is to offer a gift in order to try to turn away their wrath when you've really done something to annoy your parents and and, and, and they're really angry and you say, oh, I'll take out the rubbish, you're propitiating. You're trying to turn away wrath by offering a gift. Well, Leon Morris explains its use in the Bible like this. It's there at the bottom of page 22. Though actually there's a bit of a misprint there. It's from his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, not his other excellent book, The Atonement. He says this, among the heathen, propitiation was thought of as an activity whereby the worshipper was able himself to provide that which would induce a change of mind in the deity. In plain language, he bribed his God to be favourable to him. When the term was taken over into the Bible, these unworthy and crude ideas were abandoned And only the central truth expressed by the term was retained. Namely, that propitiation signifies the averting of wrath by the offering of a gift. But in both Testaments, the thought was plain that the gift which secures the propitiation is from God Himself. You can see this from the Romans 3 passage right there. Who puts Jesus forward as a propitiation? Right there at the beginning of verse 25. God does. God provides the means by which his own wrath against human sin can be propitiated. He provides it in Jesus' own death. So how does Jesus' death turn away the Father's wrath? Well... By paying the penalty that our sins deserve. As it says there in verse 25, God had passed over the sins previously committed. The penalty for those sins had never been truly paid. But now God shows he is just. He does punish sin. Sin will get what it deserves. And he carries out his just judgment on sin in Jesus' death. Uh, Paul explains it a bit further in the next passage on the top of page 23 from Romans 8, 1-4, which is another one of those key passages in the New Testament explaining Jesus' death. Paul writes there, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What was God doing in sending his son Jesus to die? He was condemning sin in the flesh or judging sin in the flesh in the body of a human being. Sin finally got, human sin finally got what it deserved. The full wrath of God against sin poured out on Jesus at the cross. The penalty for sin had been now paid. But that's not the only way the New Testament talks about Jesus' death and what it secures for us. Because the penalty for sin had been paid, we are now purified from the stain of sin. Point B there. On your outline. Therefore, we're purified. At the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the apostle John is given a vision of the heavenly assembly of God's people, and this is what he sees. After this, he says, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Right? That's Jesus, the Lamb that looks like he's been slain. They were robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him so you're the one who knows then he said to me these are they who have come out of the great ordeal they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb it's Jesus' blood that cleanses God's people from their sin his death purifies them see the same idea there in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 and the other verses I've listed there on your page now a bit the backstory there is again back in the Old Testament sacrificial system when they had that Old Testament tabernacle or the temple what stopped God's Old Testament people from just wandering into the Holy of Holies whenever they wanted why couldn't they do that well they were unclean Because of their sin. Do you know Isaiah 6 when the prophet Isaiah sees the holy Lord God in a vision? He sees God in a vision, and we think, oh, that'd be cool, awesome, see God in a vision. He says, though, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He knows that when we come into the presence of the holy God, stained by our sin, it will not end well. For God's holiness consumes the unholy. But what Jesus' death does is cleanse us from our sin. Our robes, if you like, stained as they are by sin after sin. After sin, after sin, after after sins too many to count, right? They're, they are wonderfully washed white in the blood of Jesus the Lamb who died for us. Now, how does that work? How, how does Jesus' death cleanse me from sin? That's not a, something we're used to thinking about. Well, I think Henri Blocher has some help for us here on your page He tells us that the very thing that stains us before God is our guilt from our sin. That's why in the Old Testament and the New, blood purifies, blood makes clean, because blood signifies that a death has occurred. The penalty has been paid, and so I am no longer guilty. Uh, Blocher puts it like this on your page. The danger of the presence's devouring fight. Now, you're going to say, Henri Blocher is a French theologian. He's amazing, right? Profound. And he writes in that way that only profound people do, right? So, the presence with a capital P, and then it's translated into English, right? Anyway, so, presence with a capital P, he's talking about God. And, presences devouring fire, the fact that God is holy and that holiness consumes the unholy right? You need a whole commentary just to understand the first three words. But anyway, here we go you got it now. The danger of the presences devouring fire the danger of being struck dead by sacred intolerance is the danger of being condemned and punished by divine justice with the biblical God What is the stain to be covered or wiped out if not the guilt incurred by sinning? And so you see, when Jesus at the cross pays the penalty for our sins, he is also then providing the means by which we can be cleansed and purified from those sins and the guilt that they have brought on us before God. Jesus' death secures the penalty paid, therefore, we are purified. But there's a third important way the New Testament talks about what Jesus' death secures. Jesus' death also purchases us to belong to God. I'm now on page 24. Starting again with Revelation, this time Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, notice what is being sung about Jesus and his death. They sing, we read, a new song to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll... And to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests, serving our God, and they will reign on earth. So notice two things here about that those few verses. First, Jesus' blood ransomed people from every nation for God. When you ransom something, you pay a price to set it free. In particular, you free those who are held hostage or captive or in slavery by paying a ransom. Jesus' death is described as ransoming people so that they can now be set free and now they can belong to God. Describing Jesus' death as a ransom actually goes back to Jesus himself in Mark 10.45, where Jesus famously said about himself, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The other bit of background lurking in this song from Revelation 5 is the great exodus in the days of Moses, when God rescued the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt, which we talked about last night. We saw last night God did that through the sacrificial death of a Passover lamb for each Israelite household. And when he brought them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them and he promised that they would be a kingdom of priests serving him as their God. That's the language that's picked up here in verse 10 in Revelation 5. But now the greater exodus, the greater rescue and the greater ransom has been achieved through Jesus. So that now we can belong to God and be his people. Now, mind you, it's a fair question to ask. What exactly have we been ransomed from through Jesus' blood? It's not like we were slaves in Egypt. But when you go through all of the New Testament, there are several ways our redemption is talked about. I've listed them there on your outline. You can see the references there. I've grouped them when they're sort of similar. I've sort of put them together on your outline. And despite the variety, though, I think there is a common idea. The thing from which we need to be freed is the power and consequences of sin in our life. That's what holds us all trapped. And again, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The power and consequences of sin in our life. That's what holds us trapped. But the power and judgment against sin is precisely what Jesus freed us from when he died on the cross when he bore that penalty for us. So you can see on your page, Alan Spence puts it like this. He says, Through an act of redemption or payment of a ransom, those who have been found guilty are released from the impending judgment against them. That's why Jesus' death ransoms us, purchases us, redeems us for God, because it pays the penalty that was standing against us. So Jesus death it pays the penalty for our sins and therefore it purifies us and it purchases us for God. But how can how can Jesus death just one person 2000 years ago one guy how can his death do those things for all of us? How does that work? So towards the bottom of page 24 One for many. It's a consistent testimony of the New Testament that Jesus died for many. His death in place of the many. I think my favourite verse in the preparation of this year's Ancon uh, has been Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 which is there on your page but also because they asked me what verse to put on the back of the booklet it's also there on the back of your booklet. The writer to the Hebrews says, We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I think that's a really useful summary of everything we've just been talking about. By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death. For everyone else. The cup, you don't want to drink. He drank. He bore the penalty. He provided the purification. He paid the ransom through his own death for everyone else so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of our sin. You can see this idea of Jesus, the one, dying for the many, echoed again and again in all the verses I've listed there. But how does that work? Jesus dying for all of us. Is that really fair? Can that really be just? Well, that's a really important question, and there's two parts to the Bible's answer. First, Jesus is not just any old human being. He's the one God has chosen to be our representative. In Romans 5, Paul draws a parallel between Adam and Jesus and then their relationship to the rest of the human race. In fact, it's not quite a parallel because he says, well, you'd think he's going to say, Jesus, he's a bit like Adam. But actually, that's not what he says. He does it the other way around. He says, Adam, he's a little bit like Jesus. Both Adam and Jesus have a special relationship to the rest of humanity. They are, if you like, the two representative heads of the human race. Through Adam comes sin and judgment and death. Through Jesus comes the free gift of God's grace, justification and life. Let's have a look at Romans 5 with me there on the page. Paul says, death exercised dominion, death ruled, from Adam through to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come, meaning Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification if because of one man's trespass death exercised dominion through that one much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man jesus christ therefore just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So both Adam and Jesus have this special representative role where what they did has implications for you, for all of us actually. Now we're used to seeing this representative idea at work in daily life. When the Prime Minister announces Australia is invading New Zealand, well, what that means is, as a nation, we are now at war and going to take what is rightfully ours. That was a joke. I don't actually think that. What? I, don't, I don't think that. I was just reflecting. You really should stop making New Zealand jokes. It's going to go badly for you. I'll just, you know, I'll just move on. If he says, we are at war, then guess what? We are at war, right? It's the power of his representative office that what he says and does has an effect on the rest of us when the captain of the German soccer team lifts up the World Cup trophy Germany has won the World Cup he accepts the victory as the nation's football representative well Jesus is the captain of team humanity He's the Prime Minister of Humanalia. What he does, particularly in his death, he does for all of us. He represents us. What does he do as our representative? Well, when he goes to the cross, he substitutes himself for us. He takes our place. He faces all all the condemnation and judgment that our sins deserve. The captain, if you like, takes the fall for the team. The prime minister takes the punishment that the nation deserve. So 1 Peter 2 puts it this way, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin we might live for righteousness by his wounds, You have been healed. That last phrase there, by his wounds you have been healed, that's the suffering servant passage from Isaiah 53. It's Jesus who fulfills that promise of the suffering servant. He carries our transgressions, he bears our iniquities, he bears the punishment that should have been ours so that we might not face the condemnation we deserve. Now, understanding that that's how Jesus death works right that he is our representative and our substitute that helps us make sense of the cross when people sort of try to shoot various objections to it now david edwards is not an evangelical he's a convinced theological liberal And he voices here a very common objection to the sort of understanding that we've been going through tonight about Jesus' death. Have a look at what he says there on your page. He says, All the eloquence of the song of the suffering servant and some of the Christian theories of the atonement cannot obscure the simple and elementary fact that it is immoral to punish anyone who is not guilty. How can it possibly be just for God to pour out his wrath on Jesus when Jesus never committed any sin? To punish someone who is innocent is never never right, surely. So if one of my kids steals something from me and I discover it, but then I decide to punish one of the other kids instead. That's not just, is it? Well, Edwards is saying here, isn't that exactly what you're saying God did? Punish innocent Jesus instead of you, instead of us? How is that just? Well, the answer lies in the fact that Jesus is not just an innocent third party. He is humanity's God-ordained representative who can and did willingly substitute himself for the team, for us. Notice how Paul describes it there in 2 Corinthians 5. We are convinced that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Now that's really interesting what he says there, because that is not how you would expect that sentence to end. Just think about it for a moment. If Jesus was just our substitute, you'd expect the verse to read like this. We're convinced that one has died for all, therefore the rest of us don't need to die. That's not what he says. He says, one died for all, therefore all have died. That is, in some sense... We died with Jesus. That's because he's not just our substitute, he's also our representative. Sin has been justly punished. My sin has been justly punished because Jesus took it as his own, as our representative head, and he died for it, and so I died with him. Paul goes on in that passage then to describe the wonderful reality of what Jesus was doing there on the cross for us. Have a a look there. Verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sins upon himself and he tasted death for us all. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't it sort of blow your mind a little bit that Jesus would do that for you? That's the wonder of the cross, right? That's why Jesus died as the man for us. But it gets better. Because Jesus is not just the man for us. He's also amazingly, wonderfully God for us. Turn over to page 26. And let's jump into these wonderfully deep, beautiful waters. There is no question in the New Testament that Jesus was a full human being, just like you or me. In fact, it was necessary that he be exactly like us in order to be our true representative. But it's also the consistent testimony of the New Testament that Jesus was not just any human being. He was not just one of us. He was God, the eternal son, come down and become a human being. So Jesus is fully God and fully human. You can see it there in the box on the page. A few starting points if you want to explore further that New Testament teaching about the divinity, the full Godness of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. But the implications of Jesus being fully God when it comes to what he's done on the cross are mind-blowing, I think. It means that it's not just one of us dying on the cross... But it's God himself in the person of his son who takes our place. Listen to how it's described in Philippians 2. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. God, the eternal Son, co equal with God the Father, takes on frail human flesh, becomes a human being. The man Jesus Christ in order to become our representative so he might substitute himself in our place, bearing our sin and guilt, suffering under his Father's just condemnation, so that we might live. That is the Christian gospel. What a mighty, amazing, grace-filled gospel that is. What a God we have that he would do that for us. John Stott puts it so beautifully uh, when there on the page, he says, and you, you should buy the cross of Christ on special, only $15. You should buy it for this quote alone. John Stott puts it so be- beautifully. Let's read what he says. This is great. Just great. It's beautifully put. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man. And puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. How great is our God! That God, the eternal son, would do this, would humble himself to such an extreme for all of our sakes. That is why Jesus died. Because God is for us. How great is our God? Now again, this understanding of God the son suffering under God the father's wrath against him. That is a sticking point for many people. Let's listen again to David Edwards, it's there on your page. He says, many of us find it impossible to understand the idea of God punishing himself. Evangelical atonement theory suggests that God has done something which would be crazy or wrong for a good man or woman to do. A judge would not be respected if having convicted a criminal and sentenced him to death or imprisonment for life, he underwent Execution or serve the sentence himself, he would be thought to be perverting the course of justice. A father or mother who declared that the children could not be forgiven until he or she had appeased and satisfied his or her wrath by committing suicide might be reported to a society for the prevention of cruelty to children admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Self punishment of this sort by a mentally healthy person is inconceivable. Of course, God's sense of justice must be both stronger and more justified than any human judges or parents. But precisely because God's justice is the justice of holy love, it seems all the more difficult to think that he could do something which, for which he would be condemned if done by a good judge or a good parent. How are you going to respond to that? I think the problem with Edward's characterisation is that he's failed to think through what it means for God to be Trinity, to be three in one and one in three. The answer to his objection lies in understanding the cross as Trinitarian atonement. God is working at the cross not as three entirely separate players because God is one. But neither is God operating the cross as just a single person because God is Father, Son and Spirit who are always distinct and always act distinctly as Father, Son and Spirit even though they always act together. That is, Father, Son and Spirit as Father, Son and Spirit God is distinct as three persons but united as one God in being and action. So Edward's problem in this quote is that he doesn't distinguish between the Father and the Son as distinct persons in the one God. See, the Bible never says God punishes himself. It says it was God the Son who suffered and died, and it was God the Father's wrath that was poured out. It's critical if we're going to make sense of the cross that we maintain a Trinitarian understanding of what God was doing there as Father, Son and Spirit, three distinct persons, each fully God, but part of one God in being and action. That then brings us, I think, to the final answer to our question. Why did Jesus die? We know he died as the man for us, our representative and our substitute, We know he did this as God the Son for us. But why would God do that for us? Well, the answer is because that's who God is. God is love. If you want to know the ultimate answer to why did Jesus die, you have to journey all the way to the heart of God. He died for us because God loves us. Uh, Look at the passages there on your page. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in 1 John 4 there, God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or John chapter 3. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus die Because God is love. Wonderfully, amazingly, he loved us. Even when we were his enemies, when we were enmeshed in sin and deserving of death, he loved us and put his rescue plan into action that saw his son, the Lord Jesus, take our place so that we might live. That is the love of God. And that's why Jesus died. If you've never responded to what God in Jesus has done for you, if you've never said, Okay, Jesus, be my representative, be my substitute, be my king. Why not do it tonight? You've heard what he has done for you. You know what you deserve. And you know his great love, which he's shown you at the cross. Take hold of it. Confess your need. Take hold of the life and the forgiveness that he offers and rejoice in the cleansing and the freedom that will be yours. If you've never done that, friend, do it tonight. Come down the front straight after the session. Chat with some of the staff who'll just be standing over here. he would love to talk and pray with you. Do it tonight because... This is what our loving God has done for us, done for you. Paul says in an incredibly personal moment in, in the book of Galatians, he says, Christ Jesus who gave who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself that you might live. Take hold of that tonight. I'm going to leave a moment for you to reflect. Maybe jot down some of the things you've learned tonight. Maybe you want to pray quietly. Maybe jot down what response you'd like to make. And then I'm going to close with prayer. Father of heaven, whose love profound a ransom for our souls has found. Before your throne, we sinners bend. To us, your pardoning love extend. Almighty Son, incarnate Word, our Prophet, Priest, Redeemer, Lord, before your throne, we sinners bend, to us your saving grace extend. Eternal Spirit, by whose breath the soul is raised from sin and death, before your throne we sinners bend, to us your quickening power extend. Almighty Father, Spirit, Son, Mysterious Godhead, three in one, Before your throne, we sinners bend, Grace, pardon, life to us extend. Amen.